welcome to Die Panda Die. I'm Liz. And I'm Liz. We have to do this for the listeners so that they can tell us apart. I'm Maddie. And this is a podcast where we follow two geeks with otherwise worthless biology degrees as they use evolution, development, and animal behavior to explore the weirdest aspects of the natural world and our own. And oh boy, is this week weird. <laughs> Pretty weird one. I thought last week was weird, but um, to be fair, it definitely was. This week is even more weird, but in a better, more fun way, in my opinion. Well, this week we're sponsored by the upcoming film Alien Covenant. No, we're not. <laughs> That'd be nice. But That'd be so nice. That's but that that's, that's kind of inspired what we're going to be talking about this week. It didn't actually inspire it because I love what we're talking about this week, and I have never seen an Alien movie. Neither have I. Oh, you know, because I feel like we were born in the nineties, right? No, and I am eternal. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was born. <laughs> easy mistake to make, though. I look very young. And I feel like we were born right after the biggest ever decade of pop culture. Yeah, we missed the 80s, and the 80s were highly influential, even for our generation. Like, people and people I know have 80s nostalgia, despite not being alive in the 80s. Yeah, and, like, most of the other people on the internet are white men in their 30s who were children during the 80s and found that very influential. I have nostalgia for the Precambrian. So, Alien is like a big part of pop culture, and I feel like I know all about it, and I know all about the fandom, and I know all about which movies are good, which are bad, why they're bad, why people don't like them. Every plot point and where that weird Ripley scene where, her pants. And that weird scene where Ripley makes out with the alien. She does that? Yeah. Oh, I didn't actually know that. That was one. Alien 4. That's the worst movie? You see, the alien has these two mouths, right? The two mouths and the mouth that comes out of the mouth, and it's full of teeth. I don't know. And also they eat humans, so I'm kind of confused. So is the directing team of Alien 4. Okay, maybe they mixed up the scripts or something with, like, a softcore. So anyway, Maddie, couldn't you have a creature in nature that bursts out of people's chest in a timely yet horrifying way? Well, they're cesareans. I'm sorry. <laughs> so, but could you have a creature that does that naturally? It could evolve to burst out of someone's chest in a spray of, like, pussing goo and, like, scare the crap out of everyone around them. Well, I already know the answer to this, so it's really unfair for me to say. And we wouldn't be talking about this if the answer wasn't yes. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> Xenomorph, welcome to nature. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We got you beat. We got you beat. Also, the bit with detachable jaws, there's a fish that has detachable jaws. Holy, really? It's really cool. Yep. That's great. Do they have two mouths? No, it doesn't have two mouths, but oh, okay. it can detach its jaw and, like, its jaw swings outward to grab prey. It's pretty cool. That's horrifying. I love it. <laughs> so, this week we're going to be talking about parasitoids. So what is a parasitoid? A parasitoid is a form of parasite. Nope. Yes. Oh, yes. That's why they're called parasitoids. They're not parasites. No, they're they no, are a they're, form of parasite. No, they're like parasites, but because they're not inside of they're they're like um it's a it's a separate separate class. No, it's a subform of parasitism. I don't think so because there's a kind of a predatorial aspect, whereas parasites are different. I think parasites tend to like directly latch on, whereas these ones are like. Uh... Well, it depends on how you define things. It depends on how you define parasite versus predator. Yes, and that's the problem, and that's what we need to solve. <laughs> oh, okay, so maybe the parasitoid is the parent, the offspring are parasites on the creature. 
Yes and no, because it depends on how the parasitoidism is occurring, because not all parasitoidism is brood parasitism, parasitoidism. A parasitoid is an organism that spends a good portion of its life attached to and physically linked with a host organism in a relationship that only terminates when the host is killed. Me and Maddie have a big argument on whether or not this is a subform of parasitism. I don't think it is. Or whether or not this is predatory. It would not be called parasitoid if it were parasitism. Oid means like. See, the reason I say that parasitoidism is a form of parasitism... Well, first you better define parasitism. A parasite is an organism that lives part of or all of its life cycle attached to a host organism. And causing it a detriment. Yes, it causes it a detriment, but traditional parasites don't kill their hosts. Mm -hmm. After all, from an evolutionary perspective, if you need your host to survive and reproduce, why would you kill it? That's an evolutionary no-no. So parasitoidism was in sort of a gray area between being a predator and being a parasite, in that parasitoids kill their prey host for a good reason. Right, but the But after doing some other stuff. But the reason I see parasitoidism as a form of parasitism is because of how it evolves. Okay. You're not going to see a parasitoid evolving directly from a predator. The way I see it, parasitoidism is something that evolves out of parasitism. It's an extreme... Because we say that a traditional parasite doesn't kill its host because killing its host provides detriment. Mm -hmm. But there are some cases where a parasite can extract more benefit by killing their host. See, actually, there's actually an interesting common linkage between all the parasitoids that I researched for this episode and we researched. Um, and that researched. is... <laughs> I mostly researched. I was mm-hmm. sick and had nothing to do. Except for this. There's a common thread between all of them uh, that it's mostly for reproductive purposes. So there's some that will lay their eggs on other animals and there's some that will... Spoilers, you know, like... I don't want to Mind control. Yeah, mind control or like... Very cool mind control, but who cause them to undertake a behavior that'll lead to them being able to spread spores or to go get into the water to reproduce. Exactly. And that just seems very distinct from the usual parasites, but it's also distinct from the usual predator behaviors. And I feel like there's two kind of... See, like for like the wasps, for instance, I feel like that's more of a predatory relationship. But with like cordyceps, that's more of a reproductive... But closer to parasitism, classic parasitism. Well, that's what you see if you define these things in isolation. So if you're looking at it from a behavioral standpoint of how can I describe this behavior in terms of other behaviors that I know about, I'm looking at it from an evolutionary biology perspective and saying, where does this behavior come from? And I don't think it's possible for a parasitoid relationship to evolve out of a predator-prey relationship without there being an intermediate parasite step Hmm. in the evolutionary tree. Because there are a lot of parasites where you can see how easily they would slip over into parasitoidism. For example, let's say I have a worm that is a human parasite, and it likes to live within the human intestine and breed there, and so it could be that it's in this worm's evolutionary interest 
to keep the host alive so that the human can keep eating and the food can keep feeding the worm and the worm can keep making babies and putting the babies in the human's poop. That could very much be in the worm's best interest. Mm -hmm. But now let's put this worm in a different environment. Let's say this worm evolves the ability to colonize rats. And so now the worm is moving into the rat intestine Mm. and is reproducing in a rat. Rats have much shorter lives than humans. So if the worm just produces the same amount of offspring every year as it did in the human, it's going to produce less total offspring. So a worm that can produce 10 offspring each year in a human and 10 offspring each year in a rat is going to do much better in the human than in the rat. Yeah, we're talking 30 offspring versus 300. Yeah. So Assuming you live to 30, actually. A lot more than 300 if you live a little longer. it's more than that, but, you know, you do have a stomach parasite, so. Let's say that worm evolves the ability to release a chemical that liquefies the rat from inside. <laughs> Continue, sorry. I was going to say give the rat diarrhea. Okay, that's, that's worse. It's kind of, yeah, it's kind of similar. So let's say the worm evolves the ability to make the rat get copious amounts of diarrhea. Suddenly, the worm... (laughs) Yeah, because you're the lab tech who's going to have to clean it up afterwards. Yeah, I already do. Science isn't an illustrious industry, let's put it that way. So, but now the worm can make the rat so sick it kills the worm. But in return, the worm can pump 300 of its offspring out into the world. So there's a fair trade-off. It dies, but it is a successful breeder. And so it's easy to see how you can go from being a parasite to being a parasitoid. Mm -hmm. Because now the worm is a parasitoid. Okay. It just kills the host in order to reproduce. Still going to take exception in the case of the wasps, but we can get into that. So not entirely. I think you're you're right, though, that it's a good explanation. No, I think that also works... I don't think you would need an internal parasite stage for the wasps. I mean, the wasps... The wasps aren't internal. Yeah, so, I mean, I can but see... But the larvae are internal. Sort of. I mean, so I, I see the evolutionary route being, oh, I have killed this wasp, or I've killed this caterpillar, mm-hmm. let me feed it to my babies, versus, oh, what if I just put my babies on the caterpillar? That's much simpler. Okay, well, the caterpillar has gotten gross, so if I could keep the caterpillar alive, that's better for my babies, my baby wasps. You know what? You're actually right. I didn't even think of it that way. But yeah, I, you're right. I could see how something like those parasitoidal wasps could evolve from a predator relationship, and I didn't even think of it that way. I guess maybe maybe there's like kind of a good rule of thumb that if it interacts on the inside, it's most likely to have evolved from a parasite relationship. But then if the interaction is on the outside of the body... That's sort of what I was thinking. There's like two different classifications of them because it did seem like there's some that are more internal than others. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think, like, the key takeaway is that evolutionarily there's a really complex interaction going on. Mm-hmm. All right, so let's get into some examples of parasitoids. I was so excited for this episode because it's finally my chance. I'm going to say a solid half of these examples have all been in my scraps document for horror shorts. Whee! Because they're all beautiful. I just, I love every single one of them, and they're all perfect gems <laughs> of some, you know, horrific movie. I'm waiting for the Cordyceps zombie movie, because I freaking imagine. Okay, so let's talk about Cordyceps. What is Cordyceps? It's a genus of Asomycete fungus, which I'll pretend to know what that means. Um, it has to do with their sexy bits. The fungus is sexy bits. Okay. Sexy fungus. 
sexy fungus. Um, and they're all endoparasitoids, uh, mainly on insects and other arthropods. So what does endoparasitoid mean? Ah, uh, yes, the prefix endo means inside, so they are internal parasites. It's inside you. Also, if one thing I learned as I was looking at cordyceps, if you just search cordyceps, it's also a popular herbal supplement, which uh, <laughs> reeks of woo-woo nonsense, if you it's ask It's like me. that black goo in Prometheus. Yeah, it's like, if you know the single first thing about cordyceps fungus, I I don't know why you would put it in your mouth. I don't know why you would do that. <laughs> it's That's nuts. Also, I mean, like, it won't turn you into, like, a zombie, because it, it doesn't work on humans like that. But, like, why would you do that? Why would you take that risk? <laughs> I don't understand it. There's so many better things to eat. But anyway. it's organic zombie powder. Yeah, so is, like, freaking death bell, death's head mushrooms. Like, I... Organic mushrooms? Where? Yeah, I know. Delicious. They will kill you. They'll kill you It's so organic, bad. but so is snake venom. Yeah. <laughs> All right, what does cordyceps do? So, the fungus Ophiocordyceps has a particular ant species. It preferably parasitizes. Parasitoidizes. So, as the ant is out foraging for food, it may come across some fungal spores. And if it fails to groom off those spores, the spores will grow on and inside of the ant. When I say fungus will grow inside of its body, I mean it will come to mostly fill its body. It'll send its hyphae through the open body cavity, I'll send it into the limbs. Do you want to know some really good stories from the time I worked in an entomology lab for three years? Oh, they're so great. So I worked with a number of insects. I worked with tiger beetles, I worked with mantises, and I worked with jumping spiders. And so the tiger beetles actually know all of them at some point or another. I've seen, I've seen many insects die, and sometimes you would find them in their cages. And yet you can't friggin' squish a cockroach when it runs across the floor. I do. I kill them very quickly. I just was upset to find one on the bathroom mat, um, and it was dead, and I thought it was lint, and then it was a bug in my hand. Like, that was the problem. That made me angry. Sure, Maddie. Yes. Well, actually, okay, now to be fair, I worked in this insect lab. You think that might have contributed? That, that might that might be wireless? Are you I know scarred? Are you scarred? Because I, I know what these insects can do. I know what they contain. <laughs> I know the horrors that can live in them. Okay, so what happened to the insects in your lab? So sometimes uh, I'd come in in the morning or the afternoon whenever I came in to feed the insects, and I would find that they uh, they, they weren't moving. So like so the tiger beetles, they would just be standing still. And you'd realize, oh... Oh no, they're not alive, because you can see around the joints of their legs little white spores of fungus. But even more impressive, the mantises. So when I was in my junior 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 year, we got these big Chinese mantises, because uh, we were doing these anatomy experiments, these uh, like circuit circuit analysis. And so there's these, these big honking mantises, and sometimes I would find them not alive, and so they'd be fine one day, and the next day they would have black mole that was creeping over them and filling their limbs and coming out of the joints, and they were the most horrifying things. Because the thing about bugs when they die is that it's going to be hard to tell unless it's very obvious, and so you're like, is it alive? I can't tell if it's alive. The face looks the same. Oh no, it's filled with fungus entirely on the inside. And the spiders, the spiders were the worst of them because, again, they'd be fine one day and then the next day you'd come in. And not only are they completely covered in this creeping white mold, but you can see, like, the general shape of them and you can see their abdomen. And normally it's, like, a a big fat abdomen and it's just been deflated like a balloon. And, yeah, I had to clean those up. Wow, that's awful. Yeah, it was, it's very unpleasant. And so... 
So cordyceps, it fills them up with fungus, and then it does something worse. Yes. So, I mean, so before it kills them entirely, it it grows. It, this is actually more insidious. It's not just trying to destroy them entirely. It's not just trying to take them over. Uh, it actually releases chemicals near the nervous system. Uh, it hasn't consumed everything yet, but as it's infecting them, it releases chemicals that direct the infected ant to climb up the nearest vegetation, so a tree or a stalk of grass, and then it'll lock its jaws into a, uh, the primary vein of the leaf or branch, so something that won't move. Piece of piece of very sturdy piece of vegetation. And then it atrophies the muscles that make, allow the ant to move its mandible, so it's, it really is locked there. It destroys its ability to move its jaw. Then the fungus kills it. Then the ant dies. The fungus is still alive, though. Then it really does consume the ant. It grows all through its body and grows out, and it leads its hyphae into the plant, securing it into place. And then finally, it releases its characteristic spore-releasing stalk from the animal's head. And so because it's caused the ant to climb higher, the spores are more easily picked up by the wind, and so they're distributed to other hapless ants. Okay, so, so, let's pretend I'm an ant, and aside from just screaming forever, what can I do to protect myself from cordyceps? Well, that's actually why a lot of insects have these grooming behaviors. So I don't know if you've ever seen, like, a housefly rubbing its front legs together. Sure. That's part of, or like, you know, scratching its, scratching at its back or, you know, wipe, wiping stuff off. And you think like, oh, what, why is the fly cleaning itself? It's a gross fly. That's not very useful. What a dumb thing to do. Idiot. Well, actually, it's because insects do get spores on them, like fungal spores. And so it wouldn't hurt you or me because we have our nice protective layer of skin and funguses aren't targeted for us. But these, these funguses will, should I be saying fungi? I Fun- don't think it matters. Uh, these funguses will kill and consume them. In other words, there's an evolutionary arms race going on yep. in between the animals and the fungus. And that's kind of interesting. That sounds like the kind of arms race where the ants are going to have to evolve very, very quickly to learn how to deal with this. Because normal parasites, while they might be a detriment to your fitness in the long run, it might mean you have fewer offspring. If you're infected with a parasitoid, then your genetic chances are very quickly dropping to zero. That's actually why there's another behavior ants, like these particular ants will undergo. To the ants that are targeted by cordyceps? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Biophia cordyceps. They'll actually, they've come to be able to detect when other ants are infected and will care, actually pick up the other ant and carry it away from the colony so that when it does climb up to a high location and die, uh, the spores won't infect the other ants. That's pretty cool. That's incredible. Other interesting stuff just about cordyceps and like how it functions that I thought was really interesting. Go for it. So for one, the fungus actually does choose a very optimal location to kill the ant. And so when infected ants were like removed from where the fungus had had them grab onto the plant and moved to like a lower location or just a different location, like not onto the primary vein of the leaf, infection rates and like spore distribution rates were suboptimal. So the fungus is really particularly choosing a location for the Mm. ant to go to. And furthermore, and so they also analyzed what type of things the fungus was releasing and they found some interesting primary agents which was quinidobutyric acid, which is a close relative of a very common neurotransmitter, neurotransmitter, GABA, which is gamma-aminobutyric acid, beta, generally. And sphingosine, which is involved in a lot of signaling cascades, which is to say a lot of like cell signaling, cells talking to each other. That's pretty awesome. It's it's very interesting. So this fungus has figured out how to make neurotransmitters, even though it doesn't have a nervous system. Mm-hmm. That's, so that, cool. that's so cool. That's so cool. 
So what's the next parasitoid? Okay. These rest, the rest of these are a little bit shorter, I guess. There's another one that's my favorite, which are hair worms. So hair worms. That sounds pretty gross. Yeah, they look like hairs. Uh, they're, they're also called horse hair worms because they also look like horse hairs. And so they're long and thread-like. They're very long. And they curl up inside of their hosts, usually taking up most of the body cavity. And so they usually parasitize crickets. And so they will just, like, they'll go... So, like, cricket, you know, like... Insects are like kind of like weird walking shells. They're full mm-hmm. of hemolymph, which is like blood, except it's clear and gushy. And they just have their or- their organs just float around in there yep. along with their muscles because they have an open circulatory system. Because they they're tiny. They don't really need that much structure. Yeah. And so like if we had an open circulatory system, it'd be incredibly inefficient and we wouldn't operate. But because mm-hmm. they're so small, uh, materials can get around and float around and it's it works for them. Yeah. And yeah, so they're just kind of like sloshing empty shells inside. And so the hairworm will take up all the body cavity. But when the hairworm is done you know, acquiring nutrients, it's done with its host and it wants to reproduce, it doesn't want to just go out into the open mm-hmm. because it'll dry up. Yeah, because remember, we talked about that on our last podcast, how all animals need water to survive. Mm. And when you want to live on land, you've got to learn to carry water with you. Yeah, <laughs> one point do these guys do that. So what they do is they manipulate the insect, usually the cricket, into walking into a body of water and drowning itself. And then the hairworm escapes its body and goes off to reproduce. <laughs> That's one way of getting around the water problem. Yeah. yeah. Here, you carry my water for me. <laughs> And then there's a series of three wasps that I love. Mm. Two, this two... behavior is very common in wasps, and especially in, in insects. What's that stat? About uh, 10% of described insect species are parasitoids. That seems, that seems so, wasps. so nuts to me. That's so interesting. Mm-hmm. Wasps are evil. Yeah, we, we've talked about how wasps are evil before, <laughs> although it was in a slightly different context. And maybe Honeybees are lovely. Honeybees are lovely. Wasps are evil. Wasps are evil. Alright, so what do these freaky wasps do? So there's one kind of wasps, um, ichneumonoid wasps, which lay its eggs on an orb-weaving spider. Then then the spider weaves a resting cocoon for the wasp lover to hide in. This is an orb-weaving spider. Usually be making like a nice Charlotte's Web web. Uh, now imagine Charlotte just manically in the corner, cr- like creating this this tomb for herself and the larva, which then hatch and consume the spider. Charlotte's nightmare. <laughs> Sorry, I ruined your childhood. <laughs> There's another wasp called jewel wasps, which are actually they're very very beautiful to look at. They're an iridescent green and very lovely looking. Not evil. And they are evil. And so these guys are the ones that create zombie cockroaches. Mmm. That's even worse than a normal cockroach. Or a normal zombie. Yeah, I hate all of these. <laughs> and so what they do, they actually, it actually requires... They, they use their sting. They use a special drug cocktail, basically, that's injected via two stings. And so the first sting, when the wasp catches the cockroach, it stings it first in the thorax and one of the ganglia leading to the legs. And this paralyzes the cockroach temporarily. What's interesting is that if you take away the wasp or the second sting, the cockroach will eventually recover in about 20 minutes. It'll, it's paralyzed for 20 minutes and then it just kind of gets up, shakes itself off and goes. But usually the wasp directs a second, more precise sting to the higher ganglia. And so it actually will search around for the specific ganglia, the specific spot of the ganglia to inject. The ganglia is part of the neurons. Ah, yes. It's sort of like... Think of ganglia as, like, little brains. So, like, bugs don't really have a single brain. They have mushroom bodies um, in the head, which act as sort of like a brain, but much of the processing is in ganglia as well, which are more mm-hmm. like, think of it like like motor pattern generators in your spine. So, like, 
if you know that's that metaphor is not going to fly with the general public okay ganglia they're like motor pattern generators <laughs> in your spine okay so there's like a lot of minor processing that goes on in your spine so like walking circuits like the neuron pulses that create walking circuits tend to be think of it instead of having a big cpu on your computer just having a computer network made out of a bunch of iphones i think that might also be confusing but I... okay what do normal people think um, um, been in science for too long. What do normal people do? Think of them as like I guess they're they're just small smaller processors. Then they're doing other stuff like a lot of motor patterns. That's okay. So <laughs> going back to eighties movies. Okay, it's like war games. What? No, hang on. It's like that movie where a, a guy teaches a robot to love. No, it's not like that at all. Um, it's like the one where ET teaches a robot to love. It's like the one that they teach the gremlins to love? Yes! Gremlins! It's like gremlins! Okay, it's like, like gremlins because like... there's a lot of them and they're all over town instead of just there being one gremlin. Okay. Okay, we've gotten off topic. I don't think that made any sense. Never mind. You know what? Just cut this bit where we explain what ganglia are because... No, I think it's charming. Anyway. It's charming. Okay. okay, so that's what a ganglia is. It's a lot of little gremlins in your head. No, it's not really. It's, I think of it as a smaller brain. Okay, so they have lots of small brains instead of one big one. Little nerve clusters. And so the wasp was actually able to be very precise as it's hunting around in this ganglia. And so when scientists figure out where they were stinging, went in, removed that part of the ganglia, and then had the wasp go and try to sting it. And the wasp will actually hunt around. They're looking for like a specific like toughness and place where they're going to reject the venom in mm-hmm. this ganglia. And so if they can't find it, they just kind of keep hunting around. Mm. Which is really nuts. And so once the cockroach recovers from the paralytic, uh, after the second sting, it grooms itself for half an hour. It always does that for some reason. I, they, I don't think they know why exactly it is, if it's part of the venom or if it's just a side effect. Uh, the wasp actually leaves during this period and goes to find a burrow where she can lay her eggs. When she returns, the cockroach is, do- is done cleaning itself and it's zombified. It's alive. It's standing there. It's seemingly... Well, it's not like, conscious because it's a bug, but it's, you know, it's... A, a, it's just standing there. It's just standing there. And it won't make any directed movements on its own. There's a common reflex in cockroaches that has two little, like, hairs on the back. Uh, it's like if you hit its knee, the yeah. foot jumps, yeah. Yeah, so there's two little hairs, and so if you usually if you give, like, a little air puff or you, like, touch them, the cockroach will run away. Mm-hmm. Now they do not do that. Mm-hmm. However, if you tug on one of the antenna, it will walk forward, mm. sort of haltingly, and then if you stop pulling, it stops. Mm. And so that's what the wasp does. The wasp will tug on it and pull it forward and lead it to the burrow where it lays an, an egg on its leg and seals in its young and the cockroach and Casco Montiato style leaves them in there. And so the venom actually slows down the roach's metabolism and also keeps it hydrated. So that's a fresh meal for when the baby wasp hatches and consumes it. It's so nice of the mommy. It's They're very loving moms. I always say, what's actually interesting, but it's like, this is all interesting. It's all wonderful. Another thing that's interesting, or a feature of this that's interesting, is that the central pattern generators are all intact. Like, the walking function is still there. Like, the nervous system still works. It just can't choose to do anything. It can't make any directed actions on its own. The decision-making part is, or the directed action part is gone. Ah, so it can do things, but it just has to be told to do things. It's like when someone's hypnotized in a movie, and they just stand there until they're told to do things. Like in that 80s movie. What 80s movie? In some 
Uh, that's fair. There's almost definitely an 80s movie about hypnosis. So there's almost definitely an 80s movie that is a relevant reference to this. <laughs> Maybe that's how we do 80s references from now on, because I don't actually know any movies. <laughs> so if we just, like, say, it's like the 80s movie, and then people will just kind of fill in the blanks with whatever they know. <laughs> it's, like, perfect. Yep, yep, yep. Oh, yeah, and this Venom also contains GABA, which mm-hmm. I don't know why they all... Well, this one actually makes more sense for it to contain GABA, because mm-hmm. GABA tends to be inhibitory, and so if it were trying to inhibit, like, a self-directing circuit that's even that's overly simplistic but mm-hmm. so actually there's oh sorry it either mimics GABA contains GABA or it also has some GABA reuptake inhibitors which means so like you may have heard of serotonin reuptake inhibitors no which, they haven't this is a normal audience well some people have depression which is a, it's an antidepressant yeah and if I have depression I'm not gonna like spend hours and hours being like I know what I'm gonna do about my depression Chemistry. Chemistry makes me less depressed. Oh, maybe there's some people out there, I'm sure. Essentially, it uh, it prevents uh, serotonin, or in this case, GABA, from being recycled into the cell. And so it just mm. stays in the synapse longer and has more of an effect. Yay. So there's a sort of, I like this because there's an interesting neuro component. And actually, it'd be there, so that interesting. That is an interesting neuro component. Because I feel like there's something really interesting mm-hmm. here. Maybe I should study that. Maybe that's what I should go to grad school for. Except then I'd have to be surrounded by these. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't like that. But now we're going to end on my favorite example because I wrote like a 30 page short you story a about bunch it. Of, you have a bunch of like big examples. And they're all my favorite example. All right. Tell us about glipt- gliptopantiles. I'm not 100% sure I'm pronouncing that correctly, but that's what I've been saying because the pant sounds wrong. That looks. No, that sounds right. Glyptopantiles. Let's go with it. So this wasp lays its eggs on a caterpillar and then some changes occur. So usually it's like a sphinx moth caterpillar. Mm hmm. The caterpillar stops moving until the larva hatch. It just stays there. It's still alive. Once again, it's still alive, but it will just stay there until the larva hatch. Do Wait, do the larva eat the caterpillar? No. So the eggs will be on or near the caterpillar, and the caterpillar will just stand guard over them. So it won't move any other time. It won't move on its own. It won't go anywhere. It won't. So this is a caterpillar. It's supposed to be It's supposed to be eating lots of food and going through a lot of molts and getting big so that when it pupates, it can form a nice butterfly or moth. This one will just stand guard over these larvae, which aren't even its own species. However, whenever anything comes near another insect or like a piece of straw dangled by a researcher, it will wave its head wildly at it. It will try to beat it away and like it'll throw itself Mm. around. This isn't a behavior it ever does another time. Like a normal caterpillar will never do this behavior. It'll pretend to be cryptic or hiding. It doesn't just thrash around at it. But it, it frightens things away, and it works. It's an effective deterrent. Nothing eats the larva. <laughs> and so this caterpillar is there, ignoring its own needs, not eating, not drinking, just throwing itself at anything that comes after these larvae. <laughs> and then it'll stay there until the larva pupae, and then it dies. That is freaky. And did the larva eat it? I'm not sure. My notes don't say. <laughs> I guess it doesn't. I guess, well, the interesting part is what it does. So there's a nice takeaway here for evolutionary biology. The takeaway is, remember how we talked about in an earlier episode, evolution having no direction? Mm-hmm. Evolution also has no conscience. Yeah. <laughs> evolution can be dark and horrible and terrifying and worse than the world's worst horror movie ever. And now I'm going to crawl on the bed and cry. <laughs> That's the behavioral takeaway. <laughs> So, well, they're fascinating to me because it's so interesting that these parasitoids have found ways to essentially, like, hack the nervous systems of these other insects and mind control them, essentially. 
it's so fascinating that they've managed to find like we, we can't replicate this I, if i went in and tried to inject like this like weird drug cocktail i'm one trying to figure out what the drug cocktail is would be it's hard like they have a hard time analyzing this because you need to know what you're looking for and if you don't know what you're looking for then you start to find it and then try to find the exact precise area where you inject the exact precise amount to cause this a very these very specific behaviors that's so cool. <laughs> and that's the intersection of behavioral neuroscience that really, that's that's what's interesting to me. Mm-hmm. Trying to figure out, like, it's the, it's the kind of the right link between, like, this, like, interesting cognitive stuff and the very mechanical roots of they're making a change to the nervous system and that's showing this behavioral output. It's so interesting. Yeah, and it's, it's the fact that it's so very specific. And, like, you see that with other insects, too, like assassin bugs, which are just plant predators, uh, but they have, like, these very specific drug cocktails they inject in very specific spots to, like, perfectly paralyze these insects as they eat them. Yeah, that's a bit of a bit of a tangent, but what's so interesting is just the linkage between behavior and neuroscience. So is that all? I think so. All right, well, we better wrap this up because my stomach is kind of feeling... Oh, Jesus, Liz! <laughs> oh, God. Oh, oh. <laughs> It's horrifying. This doesn't really work on audio. It really does not work. Boom! Chestburster! Yeah, that's the noise it makes. Should we try to like imitate some kind of like gushing noise maybe, I guess? Gush! Yeah, that's exactly what it sounds like. We've never seen Alien. 